Anyway, the book of Acts, chapter 15. What a book. Such an encouragement, this book. Verse 6, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. We'll be talking about what that matter is. For now, let's continue. Verse 7, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know what a, that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made, us, made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We pray that you would really Reveal to us this morning, Lord, the simplicity of it, of your salvation, the power of it, Lord. And Lord, just the, just the full meaning of it. We pray that you would reveal that to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. So we're going through the book of Acts, and in this book, it's about... Uh, the story of what happened when Jesus was taken up after, rather, Jesus was taken up uh, to heaven. It's the story of the birth of the church. It's the uh, picture of what God's church is supposed to look like, sound like, and act like. So what does God's church look like, sound like, and act like? Well, uh, for one thing, we've learned this. It keeps nothing to itself. It keeps nothing to itself. We've learned this uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, The church, God's church, wants to give what it has. It wants to tell what it knows. It wants to live out what it's taken in, and its focus is not inward it's outward. Churches that f- their focus is inward, they die over time. And, and, and Jesus did not establish the church for the churches to look inward, where it becomes all about us, what we can do for us. And churches were established to uh, look outward. And, and Je- when Jesus gave himself to the world, he told his disciples, he said, don't keep me to yourself. Go into the world and share me with others. And, and that is what a healthy church does. It keeps nothing to itself. Uh, if, you, if you run into a church where they have secret kind of rituals uh, that no one else is really able uh, or has the right to find out, run from that church. That's not the church that Jesus established. Uh, he, the church that he established, he said to them, go and make Uh, disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Just everything. Don't keep stuff back, secrets, rituals, whatever. Go to and and share with them everything. And the first time a church actually 
obeys Jesus' command to take the word to all nations was in Acts chapter 13, where a church in the city of Antioch, a church about 200 miles north of Jerusalem, uh, they sent out Paul and Barnabas to other nations. We take that for granted today. 2,000 years ago, a church had never done something like that. But they went out and they started going to other nations in Acts 13. It uh, describes what the message was. Paul declared to uh, the people there in, in another city, and actually was what is today modern-day Turkey. Uh, he said to them, uh, God has raised up a Savior, a Savior, a Savior of the world. And this Savior is His Son. And through believing in Him, your sins are forgiven, and they're forgiven Apart from obeying the law. Apart from obeying the law. Simply by believing in Him, your sins are forgiven and you're saved. Now, this message electrified these people. These, they were called Gentiles, non-Jews, living away from uh, outside of Israel and just other nations. It electrified them because up until that time, they really saw the law as an insurmountable barrier between them and God. There used to actually be non-Jews who used to be observers at the synagogue, at the Jewish synagogues across the Roman Empire. They would come and they would observe, wouldn't really be a part of it, but they see the, saw the law as just an insurmountable barrier between them and, and God. And, and it was <laughs> an insurmountable barrier. And it still is to this day. It's an insurmountable barrier for them. It is for you. It is for me. No one can ever uh, sort of climb over the law uh, or, or obey it in such a way that they deserve heaven. That they deserve a relationship with God. Now they're being told, however, by Paul and Barnabas, that Jesus had followed the law for them. uh, Had torn down the barrier of the law. And now they had direct access to God simply by believing in Him. And so they began to pour into the churches. Multitudes of Gentiles, non-Jews, pouring in. Now this was a shock a shock to the Jews. Uh, they had never seen anything like this before. Uh, and not only that, uh, you know, historically, they hated these people. I mean, the Jews, they called the Gentiles dogs. The Roman historian uh, Tacitus uh, made this observation of the Jews. He said they hate all people except their own countrymen. There's a common prayer at the time that every Jewish male would recite in the morning. I thank you, Lord. I was not born a Gentile. And so, uh, needless to say, when multitudes of Gentiles start coming into the church, some of the Jewish people were like, wait a second. Whoa. Wait a second. And they began to attack the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. And then they just ran them out of town. And this would happen from city to city to city. In one of those cities, Paul was actually stoned. He was dragged outside of the city and left for dead. But listen, what was wrong with what they were doing? 
They were fighting God. And you never fight God and win, ever. It's a futile struggle. And we've, uh, many of us have been there. I've been there, fighting God and what He wants in our life. Most futile thing you can do. Isaiah 43, 13. I love this verse. It's, this is God speaking. He says, I work. Who can reverse it? Isaiah 43, 13. I work. Who can reverse it? No one can. You can't reverse uh, the work of God or turn it back. And, and they may have chased Paul out of each city. Every city they chased him out. But what happened in every city? What did they leave behind? A church. A church. And these churches, uh, actually, they began to multiply. So at the end of chapter 14, uh, Paul, uh, he gets up from being stoned. He and Barnabas go back to the cities where churches had been established. They encourage them, and then they make the full circle. They go back to Antioch, which is where the city that they began in. And they share with the people in their home church, the one that sent them out, what God had done. And, and that the Gentiles were coming to faith in droves. And you can only imagine the excitement that this was uh, producing in the life of the church there. I mean, oh, to be a part of this new thing, this brand new thing that God was obviously doing. And then just to hear the stories that, that they came back with. I know Paul at one point prayed and the man was struck blind. And they're listening to these stories. A, a, a lame man from birth was raised, uh, raised up, started leaping and jumping. Gentiles begging them to hear the word of God. And then being stoned in the city of Lystra and being left for dead and raising up. And, and, and no doubt the people listening to these stories in this church, by then the, actually this church in Antioch was a large church and, 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 and so much going on. Wow, the Lord is moving among us. Uh, this is awesome. And that is how chapter 14 ended with Paul giving this great report about what the Lord had done. And no doubt, great joy erupting among the pe people, a feast of joy, a feast of, uh, a, a love feast. But, verse 1 of chapter 15, some men come from outside of the church, up from Judea. They throw a theological bomb into the middle of the party. It says in verse 1, and certain men came from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised. According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You've got to put yourself in the shoes of these new believers, these new Christians. Someone telling you, you're not saved because you haven't been circumcised. Antioch is a Gentile city. It's a Gentile church. Uh, circumcision was a Jewish uh, law. Gentiles were not circumcised. And so, you know, what happens here? The party in Antioch, this God party, abruptly ends. The joy is uh, replaced with confusion. The joy is replaced with pain. And listen, believe it or not, supremely, it was not the requirement to be circumcised that was painful to them. Although I'm sure that played a, uh, played a part, but supremely, uh, that wasn't what was causing the most pain. It was the fact that their new found liberty and freedom was being 
robbed from them or someone was attempting to. That was what the, that's, that's really the cause of the pain. The wonderful thing about being born again by the Spirit of God. And the Bible says that you're born once from the womb of your mother physically and then born again by the Spirit of God. The wonderful thing about being uh, born again is, is the freedom that comes along with it. Romans 8.36, Jesus says, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, The Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And we have the Holy Spirit as children of God. That's the, it's called the promise. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the promise that everyone receives when they get the Spirit of God. And the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we're free from the burden of the law. The Bible says that once you're a child of God, you're no longer under the law. You're under grace. That's a Bible verse, by the way. Uh, Romans 6.14. Very simple. You are under, you are no longer under law, but under grace. Romans 6.14. Now listen, this is so important. So these people are trying to put them back again under the law. And let me tell you, it always happens when someone tries to put you under the law with something. Circumcision, whatever. Having to go to church on Saturdays. Or you have to be baptized in our church to be saved. This type of thing. It never stops with that one thing. It never ever does. You know, it it starts with you must be circumcised. But, uh, you know, in other words, what Jesus did on the cross plus circumcision. But it never stops there. There's so much more law from uh, from where that came from. Uh, They'll just add more and more and more and more law. It happens every time whenever someone tries to add to the cross. So unless you worship God on Saturday, the Sabbath, you are not a true Christian. You hear this type of thing uh, today. Well, let me tell you, if you buy into churches uh, that teach you that, I promise you, uh, you will see those churches just piling it on. They'll begin to pile on the law after you get into a church like that. Never fails. Ever be, ever as a little boy. We're underneath like a flush pile, you know. I know you girls, you weren't into those things, but you're on the uh, school playground, boys. Am I the only one? Is this only in the late 60s, early 70s? You know, someone cries out flush pile or some other, something else, which I won't say right here. And and then just all of a sudden you have 10 boys on top of you and your your face is on the concrete, you know. You can barely able to breathe sort of deal. And that's what it will be like if you buy into that type of thing. A church that teaches that kind of thing. What Jesus did for you on the cross plus this other thing. Go to church on Saturday. Or you have to be baptized in our church. Or unless you pray this many times, go to this many meetings, read the Bible this much every day, and share Christ with this many people, you're not a true Christian. Again, if you buy into that, you'll find yourself under a flesh pile, the flesh pile of the law. 
uh, at a church like that. Because you were not born again to be under the law. You were born again to be under grace, freed to have your eyes fixed on Jesus, not on the law. And, and, and free to go boldly into the throne of grace so that you can obtain mercy and find grace in your time of need. Because you haven't been able to follow the law. That's what you need. And the irony, of course, is that people who are really under grace, they recognize they've been freed from the law. They've recognized that Jesus has done it all. He has done it all Those are the very people who are the most shining examples of law abiders. That's the mother of all ironies. Is that people who understand grace follow the law better than anyone who's ever been under the law. It's just that the law is not their focus. It's not their preoccupation. Their preoccupation is the Lord. Their love for the Lord. Their preoccupation is loving God. Their relationship with him. So anyway, back in Acts 15, these guys show up. They just blurt this out. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2 says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. In other words, Paul had a nutty. Uh, You know, I can just see the blood vessels popping out of his neck. I mean, this guy had been stoned and left for dead for teaching the message of grace. He wasn't about to let these uh, spiritual narco agents, these uh, spiritual thugs, uh, trash this love feast. What was going on? So what happens? They take the argument down to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they appear before all the apostles to resolve this dispute. And so that's where uh, in verse 10, the apostle Peter gets up. So we read this morning. And he says, now therefore, he's speaking to these, these men who had been laying this religious trip on the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He says, now then, why do you t- test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. So a yoke was a big wooden beam that farmers placed on an ox. The farmers would attach a plow to the yoke. And so that's how they would do their farming. But a yoke was synonymous with a burden, a heavy burden. You lay a yoke on someone, you're just laying a burden on them. And Peter says to these guys, why are you putting a yoke on the neck of these people that neither you nor your fathers were ever able to bear? Well, who do you think you're kidding? You've never been able to bear this burden. Why are you laying it on these guys? You're putting a stairway to heaven in front of these people. Each step of the stairway, another requirement from the law, when neither you nor your fathers have ever been able to make it up the stairway. Why are you doing this? And then he says in verse 11, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Notice, by the way, it says, we, the Jews, shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles, not the other way around. 
He's not saying the Gentiles will be uh, saved in the same manner as us. So everyone is now free from the ceremonial law, circumcision. And, and, and this type of thing. And so he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders that God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Now, this is the Apostle James, who is the brother of Jesus. This, rather, this is not the Apostle James. He had actually been executed by Herod. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And it says, this is James speaking in verse 14. He says, Simon has declared, Simon being Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. That, by the way, is exactly what God did with you if you've given your life with Christ. He took you out from wherever you were to be part of a people for his name. He took you out. He removed you to be part of a people for his name. Verse 14, what a responsibility, what a privilege. He continues on in verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree that just as it is written, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So here, James is quoting the Old Testament prophet Amos, who prophesied that one day Gentiles, non-Jews, would be Pouring into the church. James continues in verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. In other words, God has prepared. What you people are seeing before your eyes, he's saying to them, God has known this and prepared it uh, from all eternity. Verse 19, it says, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let's not trouble them. Let's not lay a religious trip on them. Let's not stop, stop their love feast, their, their, their feast of joy, verse 20, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, you may be saying, okay, so what on earth is all this about? Uh, you know, abstaining from things polluted by idols, things strangled, things from blood. What kind of weirdness is this? Well, I'll explain, but first, let's read on. Let's read more weirdness. Uh, verse 22, uh, it says, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their company to Antioch, with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas. This is a different Judas than betrayed Jesus. And Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. So this was a letter that they were going to send back to the churches to explain to them what the apostles, what conclusion they had arrived at 
regarding this whole thing about circumcision being required for salvation. And this is what the letter said. It says in verse uh, 23, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. This is what the letter said in verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls. Now the translation there is turned upside down your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us. You can underline that, ver- that phrase. It seemed good to us. Being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by the word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, so they went off with this letter, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So they started the party back up. We are free in Christ. Okay, so what's going on here? Here's what's going on. Now, remember the argument there. It says whether a person was required to be circumcised to be saved. That whole thing was taken to Jerusalem. Peter gets up and says, you guys don't get it. We've been freed from the law. Get out of town with this argument. Then, the, then James gets up and he says, and I agree with Peter We don't want to lay the burden of the law on the Gentiles. We don't want to lay that kind of religious trip on them. However, there are four things we really need to tell these Gentiles to avoid. And he lists those four things. Number one, things polluted by idols. What's that? Well, at the time, people would come to these pagan temples with bulls and lambs or whatever to sacrifice to the god Zeus the goddess Aphrodite, you know, Diana, whoever. Then the priest, then the priest um, in these pagan temples, they'd turn around and they'd sell the meat in the open market. And James is telling the Gentiles, don't eat that stuff. Number one. Number two, he tells them, abstain from blood. <laughs> what, okay, what's that about? Well, Jewish law forbade drinking blood. And you say... I don't need a law to, to make me not drink blood. You know? <laughs> uh, well, 2,000 years ago, it was quite common. Uh, Jewish law forbid it, however. And, and you know, b- you know, Jewish law is a big no-no. James tells the Gentiles, no can do on the drinking blood thing, is what he says. By the way, anyone here ever have a blood sausage? Hate to change the... Said one, two... Anyone here Argentinian? Do I have any Argentinian? Anyone like Pariada Argentina? 
They, man, they have those blood sausages. I hate to tell you, but ugh, they are good. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, you'll probably never listen to another sermon of mine the same, but I, I'm telling you guys. <laughs> but uh, anyway, stop the blood sausages thing. That's what James said. Number three, abstain from things that are strangled. Now, this one is related to the no blood thing. Jewish law forbade eating meat of an animal who died by strangling. Why? Because the blood had not been properly drained out of the animal. When we buy a steak at Stoppin' Shop, the blood has been drained out. But with a strangled animal, not the case. Um, So if you eat the uh, meat of a a strangled animal, in essence, you're drinking blood. And and again, uh, James says, no, no, don't do that. And then finally in the letter, he says, and, and no sexual immorality. And so you say, well, why, why did they choose these four things? Again, the key is really the Jews themselves and what they uh, were used to. Uh, it says there in uh, verse 21 there, it says, For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city. What he's saying there is there's Jews in all these cities. Where these new churches are, there's Jews there. And they're really sensitive about this stuff. I mean, they haven't been, uh, they haven't been drinking the blood thing. They've had the no blood thing for centuries. They have, you know, they don't want to eat meat that's been offered to idols. That's just scandalous to them. So do me a favor don't be going and just freaking them out when you ch- show up at the church barbecue or whatever by bringing your bottle of blood or where your blood sausages or whatever. And that's what he's telling them. But with different stuff going on uh, 2,000 years ago out in the world. Uh, and, and so really this is an act of love. That's what this is all about. This is an act of love is what it is. This is so important, however, that you understand what he's not doing. He's not piling on the law. He's not doing that. How do I know that? Well, look at the last part of verse 21. Or rather, verse 29. He's not piling on the law. How do I know that? Last part of uh, verse 29. How does he end the letter? He says, if you keep yourself from these you will do well. He doesn't say, if you keep yourself from these, you'll lose your salvation or something like that. You know, in other words, very different tone than the guys who showed up in Antioch and said, unless you're circumcised by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. This reads very different, doesn't it? James is saying, uh, you know, He's saying, if you keep from these things, you'll do well. This is a request that they're making. He's not suggesting that it has anything to do with their salvation. He's saying, out of love for your Jewish brothers in Christ, keep yourself from these things. You know, it's almost uh, not possible for me to overstate the emphasis in the Word of God for unity in the body of Christ. Almost impossible for me to 
overstate the emphasis the Bible has about that subject. On the night before he was crucified, in John 13, Jesus said to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, to love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, you know, that's not always easy to do when you are bringing many cultures together. You know, take our church, for example. I mean, we've got people in this church from all over the place, all kinds of different uh, backgrounds. And I think, you know, I think just about one little area, worship, and the implications it has on worship, that there are people from many different cultures just converging here uh, on Sunday morning. You know, the white folks, hey, we're the frozen chosen. What can I say? You know? And a worship set, man, if, if we're tapping our foot during a song, wow, man, you know, that's a radical day in the house of God. <laughs> but the black and Hispanic folks, man, they want a buggy when they come in here. And, 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 and so if we're going to bring God's glo- bring glory to God, the people, when they come in here, that they'll know that we're Christian by our love. We're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle. I don't know exactly where it is. But out of our love for each other and the glory of God. You know, you, you see someone uh, next to you, you know, all shaking and hollering during a worship song. Cool out, man. The world's not going to, the sky's not going to fall down. If you see someone next to you tapping their foot and you just want to smack them to live them up a little. You know, restrain yourself. Pray for the poor guy. You know, uh, hugs, another area. I know in many Asian cultures, they're not into hugging. It's like, what's up with this hugging thing? That's not really what they're saying. But, but um, you know, it, it, I remember being in China, and I had dinner with some brand-new Christians there. And... I have these brand new Christians there, and it's in a communist country. And I'm like, I just so bad want to reach these people and give them a bear hug. And so after we had dinner, I reached up, and, and some poor little lady, I, I tried to hug her, and she thought she was being attacked by a bear or something, you know, this type of deal. So, and, and, and then I sort of backed off realizing what was going on, but uh, not before probably scaring her to death. But anyway, we have to seek the Lord as to how we're going to glorify him by getting along with each other. And we've got to talk about these things, by the way. We can't pretend like they don't exist. So back in Acts 15, some of, you know, uh, this is what's happening. This is really just a, a, a love thing going on. And they're saying, look, you've got to keep some things in mind when you get together with your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, some of you may say, okay, I get the blood thing. I get the food offered to idols thing. But what's up with the sexual immorality? I mean, why did they list that as one of the four? Uh, why did they not include other things if they included sexual immorality like murder and stealing and lying and cheating? 
It's a good question, right? Well, there's a reason for it. These Gentiles, these new non-Jewish believers, they knew murder was wrong. They didn't have to be told that murder was wrong. That was a really clear thing in their society. But sexual immorality, sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman, was so utterly prevalent, they had no idea that it was wrong. You know, it, ironically, we have reached the same place today. I was just talking to a guy two weeks ago who was saved when he was about 27. He said when he was saved, when he asked Jesus in his heart, someone actually, uh, one of, a brother came up to him and said, hey, man, you know, now that you're saved, you, gotta, you can't be sleeping around with women. He's like, you're kidding me. He goes, no, no, really, really, that's what the Bible says. He goes, he goes, I never knew that. How am I supposed to do that? I can't do something like that. And, and, and he really, really didn't know. I have had, uh, I've had at least one occasion with someone coming up to me after a service that I taught on sexual purity saying they had no idea that that was the case, that God really forbids us to be uh, engaging in uh, sexual uh, immorality or uh, in sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And so um, that's what the society, the non-Jewish world was like at the time. The Roman world was just unbelievably promiscuous. And so, he, he, you know, he's also telling them in this letter, look, you guys also need to abstain from this, from uh, sexual immorality. And, and, you know, it's just, again, it's all about love. That's what this chapter 15, it's all about love and the priority that Jesus puts on love. You know, recently I was reading Paul's letter to the Philippians, and he says this in verse 3 as he's greeting them in the letter. In Philippians chapter 1, he says to the Philippian church, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I was thinking to myself, that's what glorifies the Lord. That's the unity, the love that glorifies God. That is the kind of love. When, when we have reached the place, and God's bringing us to this place in our lives, if we're seeking him and following him, that upon every remembrance of our brothers and sisters, we just thank God, we just burst out, Lord, thank you for them. You don't find that kind of unity, that kind of love in the world. And, and that's the kind of unity really Acts 15 is talking about, that, you know, you, you, you love them in such a way that, man, you... you you're thanking God at the very thought of them, and you are quick to think of a way to come together on points of difference. And, and there's just so much opportunity for difference in the body of Christ. Now, if the difference has something to do with salvation, like we saw in verse 1, Unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a completely different matter. 
Because that is one instance where coming together and agreeing, no way. <laughs> I mean, there's some things that you do not compromise, and we do not compromise the finished work of Christ. If Jesus said, last thing he said on the, uh, on the cross, it is finished, we are supposed to take him for his word and not add anything. But on other issues, how we worship, you know, when we worship, how often, entertainment, giving, there's so many. We need to love each other in such a way that we're coming together on these areas of difference. And so I love this. I love this chapter. They put this all in a, a, a letter. And in verse 31, it says, when they read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Praise God. What a, a, a wonderful ending uh, to, this, to this dispute. Uh, and so this morning, actually, we're going to have communion. If the worship team could come up. And communion was given to us by Jesus on the night he was, uh, same night he was arrested. He gave us communion. And he gave communion to the children of God. And the Bible says not everyone is a child of God. In John chapter 1 verse 12 it says, To those and only those, to those who have believed in Jesus, to those who have received them, he gives the right to become a child of God. We come and become a child of God at a point in time in our lives. We're not born that way. Eliana this morning, she wasn't born a child of God. She becomes a, uh, a, a child of God at the point that she puts her faith in Jesus Christ. And until that time, as a young, prior to the age of accountability, she's covered under the, the faith of her parents. But we all need to come to faith in God. That's how we become a child of God. Uh, but there are two kinds of people in the world. Gentile Jew, Asian, Hispanic, black, white. Children of God. Men and women who are children of God and men and women who are not children of God. Men and women who are children of God are those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, what he did for them on the cross. That Jesus, what he did uh, on the cross, all the work that was necessary for me to become into a relationship with Jesus from now to eternity, it's been finished. There's nothing else that I can add to it. You simply believe. We just read that. You become a child of God. If you've never done that this morning, we're going to have some people praying here uh, while the worship team uh, starts, uh, starts up in, in, in a couple minutes from now. If you've never, actually if you've been asked to pray, if you could uh, come up. 